2: Hello and welcome to the BFI podcast. I'm Henry and I'm Anna. Hey Anna. No. That by the way. <laughs> <laughs> thanks. That by the way is not my Harry Belafonte. That's my Freddie Mercury because this episode we're going to be talking about Freddie, about Queen, the Queen biopic Bohemian Rhapsody and more widely what makes any musician story sing on screen. Bohemian Rhapsody, which is out in the UK now, follows Farrakh Balsoura from his days as a Heathrow baggage handler to his stage starting status as Freddie Mercury, lead singer of Queen, and the best rock singer who ever lived. Don't, as the kids say, at me. Born in the last night. Don't escape from reality. I enjoyed the show. I also write songs. Our lead singer just quit,
0: then you'll need someone new.
1: I love the way you move on stage. The whole room belongs to you. Don't you see what you could be?
2: No one will play us on the radio. We need to get experimental. Thunderbolts and lightning, very, very frightening Do it again. One more. How many more Galileos do you want? Roger, there's only room in this band for one hysterical queen. Anna, are you a Queen fan and what's your favourite song?
1: I mean, of course I am. I'm not an idiot. (laughs) <laughs> um, I think my favorite song—it's going to be a classic. It's going to be "Killer Queen." That is a really
2: good one. It's an excellent yeah. one,
1: and it's also all about me.
2: So you're more about the kind of glam phase than anything else. They didn't really have phases, did they? Just like no, everything.
1: I wouldn't say they had phases. But also, um, I'm not going to go into that because I'm no Queen expert. I'm just a fan. I love the song. I wouldn't—I love all of them to be honest. But that's the one that comes to mind.
2: And before we get into music biopics proper, what have you discovered since we last chatted?
1: I've been watching a lot of stuff, but the thing that I'm fangirling over the most is actually American Horror Story Apocalypse, which is the eighth season in Ryan Murphy's mythology horror series. And it's particularly momentous for fans of the series because it ties together some of the worlds that he's built in previous seasons. And the iconic cast member Jessica Lange also makes her return after not being a part of the last two seasons.
0: Welcome to Outpost 3. The house rules are simple. You may never leave the building due to the danger of radiation contamination. And no unauthorized copulation. No exception.
2: What's happening out there? It's all gone.
0: Boring! Strangely satisfying, isn't it? Dispensing punishment. It's our world now to remould as we see fit.
1: That's the one that I eagerly await um, every week to watch. And it's gone completely mental. It's set in a dystopian post-apocalyptic world. It is actually titled The Morgan Horror Story Apocalypse. And it is all about the shenanigans of a boy wonder antichrist played <laughs> by Cody Fern, who is fast becoming my favourite Ryan Murphy discovery.
2: I got hooked up on shenanigans there. <laughs> Great used to the word my discovery this time around has been trust which is the bbc uh, is it HBO as well? I'm going to say HBO. Yeah, um, story of the Getty dynasty and particularly the kidnapping of John Paul Getty III which is an incredible story that I didn't know anything about. I didn't see the film that was out last year which um, Ridley Scott's film about it starring Christopher Plummer but this is uh, exec- produced by Danny Boyle and loops around the various crazy things that happened around the kidnapping of this incredibly rich young man whose family essentially refused to pay the ransom because Granddad was too tight.
0: They're saying he's he's been kidnapped. Hassan's on one of his benders again. Kids on benders don't send kidnapped notes. You saw him last? He merely mentioned that he owed money to the mafia. Merely the mafia? You don't have no money? What
1: do you think's happened to him?
0: This could bring us all down. The
1: business, the family, everything. I will not pay a single,
0: solitary cent.
2: It's an amazing, amazing series. Also great uh, is a podcast called The Dream, which is about multi-level marketing in America, which doesn't sound interesting. but uh, That that, sounds super hot. mm, I know. It's sort of like multi-level marketing is essentially a pyramid scheme. (laughs) And it's how people sell to each other and how that's a complete fraud. And America and huge industry in America is built on this idea of people living a dream and never being able to make any money from it.
0: So there was this guy, John M. Taylor. He passed recently who studied business at Brigham Young and the University of Utah. Utah, where there are more MLM corporate headquarters per capita than anywhere in the world. It's the perfect place to study this. In perhaps his most impressive study, Taylor looked at the compensation plans and possibilities for success in 600 MLMs. And he found that net losses were experienced by, wait for it, over 99% of people who attempt this sort of business. In other words, he found that almost 100% of people who buy into an MLM walk away having lost money.
2: Particularly interesting because men who study economics have never really bothered to study pyramid schemes like Tupperware parties because they're mainly uh, centered on women. And so there's a kind of underlying sexism going on there as well. So it's great. Check it out. That's the dream podcast. Fortune favors the bold.
0: Freddie, concerning your private life. What more do you need to know? I make music.
2: I want to give the audience a song that they can perform. What's the lyric? Right, on to Bohemian Rhapsody and the Art of the Music biopic. We're going to talk about the five things all music biopics do, but in tribute to Freddie's penchant for excess, we're following a high-concept format to get us there. Bohemian Rhapsody, the song, has five distinct movements, and we've taken a line from each, with each line representing one of our points. So...
0: Is this just fantasy?
2: And what point are we making here? Well,
1: that music biopics are better if you tell lies. Yeah. It's better if you wrap up the music and the musician's stories with a little bit of fantasy rather than sticking slavishly to the truth. And it's interesting to compare films like 24 Hour Party People, Last Days, Amadeus, to things that were really, really sticking to what exactly happened and very often controlled by the very people that they're supposed to be portraying, like Straight Outta Compton or um, Notorious,
2: Or even Bohemian Rhapsody, to some degree. It's fairly controlled by the remaining members of Queen. In fact, almost exclusively to a fault.
1: Which is, in a way, trying to not rewrite history, but really show a very personalised or one-sided part of what actually happened and how people were at that time at their peak creative moment and how they related to each other as well. There will be naturally, because it's the human instinct, a desire to edit some things about how they really happened or portray certain people in a more positive light.
0: Just hit that first beat hard. Are you cruising down the street?
2: All right. Cruising down the street in my 64. Hey, that was dope, eh?
0: You're listening to Compton's very own Ice Cube, Easy E, and Dr. Dre. I gotta tell you, you are witnessing history. People are staring at you guys. You have a unique voice. The world needs to hear it. They want N.W.A. Let's give them N.W.A. Hey,
2: it's definitely a great care taken over the legacy, which always makes for a dull story. And what particularly drives me mad with a lot of music biopics is the kind of magical music moment. So when you take that idea of fantasy, but spin it into the process of creating music, and it strikes me that musicians find it very difficult to talk about how they write songs, but filmmakers find it very easy to show the process of making a song as this kind of amazing um, dawning moment that just sparks suddenly this massive hit you know so in Bohemian Rhapsody there's like two or three scenes where they start kind of doing the stamp stamp clap of we will rock you and suddenly the song has blossomed from nowhere and it might well have happened like that but I don't believe it for a second.
1: I mean to be fair the music writing process is probably quite boring and long and extensive. (laughs) Um, But I actually think that Bohemian Rhapsody does do a good job in showing the collaborative process of it, as opposed to just saying Freddie was an absolute genius and he came up with all of these tunes and these anthems by himself because he's a magical unicorn of songwriting. There is this collaborative process that some things, like the riff of um, Another One Bites the Dust came from from John Deacon and that it sparked something in all of the other members. Another musical biopic that doesn't get the love it deserves that shows this really well is Love and Mercy, the biopic about Brian Wilson, which, um, again, kind of errs on the side of portraying him as the sole genius and the Beach Boys who mm. basically created all of the music and the lyrics and um, engineered everything. But it shows this painstaking and very long studio process as well which I haven't seen in other biopics because it does tend to be kind of like you go in and the first take is magical and that's what ends up on the record.
2: Yeah you're right and both films have that kind of mad genius element in it. So there's a scene in Love and Mercy where Brian Wilson is shown bringing dogs into the studio to do the barks on pet sounds and then in this one Freddie Mercury gets people to like I think throw Uh, put a beer can on a drum and bang it and throw coins on a cymbal and let the sound effects come out i guess those are very easy visual things to show to make studio engineering look exciting but for the most part there is this feeling that you're right you're just pressing record and sitting there for hours and hours and hours and trying to get it right and that doesn't make an interesting film my problem is when people stretch that into here's a very very quick montage of us writing the song and then suddenly it's in the stadium and everyone loves the song because songs don't work like that and they shouldn't, right? You should learn, we should all learn to love them and they should bleed through. There's actually one scene in this where um, Rami Malek as Freddie Mercury starts playing the piano part to Bohemian Rhapsody in bed and you feel like that song has been with him for years and years and he's suddenly starting to bring it out into the open and that actually feels realistic, like like a melody could sit with you for that long and that, that worked in the film as well.
1: I think the the best job they do about portraying kind of that, first of all, the inspiration for where it comes and how it sits with him for years is the song Bohemian Rhapsody because it keeps coming back throughout the entirety of the film until it is finally fully formed. Um, but you see how it's created and all the different elements that go into it and that it's not just one single burst of inspiration, but that there is a lot of engineering and a lot of rewriting and a lot of work that goes into creating something like that.
2: My time is okay, point number two. My time has come. So in 2016, there was one week where there were biopics of Hank Williams, Miles Davis and Chet Baker all released in the same week. And it really fascinates me when these films come out because I feel like they don't really get done unless they're a passion project of an actor who really, really wants to do them. So in the case of the Miles Davis biopic, it was Don Cheadle, Ethan Hawke played Chet Baker. And then Tom Hiddleston did the uh, Hank Williams one. It's a bit of a stretch to call that a passion project for him, but he definitely threw himself at it. And there's something wrong about that, that an actor gets such power to get these stories in particular made because they're not particularly... Interesting stories. For the Do most you think part.
1: there's something very appealing for actors, for performers, about portraying a well-known or very often troubled musician on screen? Do you think it's such a juicy, dare I say, awards baity role that they tr- tend to try to drive them forward because they know they're going to be able to showcase their talents?
2: Perhaps I think. Also, like any of us, like regular people, actors fall in love with a musician's music as well. And you you start to buy into the myth of who somebody is. But the problem is when you start showing the myth on, in a film, it becomes deadly boring. There are real exceptions. I think someone like Angela Bassett in the Tina Turner biopic she's definitely playing a caricature of what that character was from the myth that was developed for her but she also plays it brilliantly and plays it like a real person at the same time so I think you, they have to show these people as larger than life but they also have to feel real as well. every
0: woman in here want to sing with Ike's Band? Oh please don't leave the baby That girl can sing Girl, you shocked the hell out of me. <laughs> <laughs> say you want me to be his new singer. Watch yourself. You know what they say about Ike. Yes, too. I think it's gonna work out fine. It's gonna work out fine. Priceless, girl. Priceless. She priceless, all right. She ain't seen a dime of it yet.
2: Everyone who's come up with me has
0: left me. I wouldn't do that. Uh, what the problem is? I'm trying to help Ike, all right? You trying to help Ike? you got yourself a good man. You're just keeping that. You can't keep hiding black eyes from us. I just can't
1: walk out. I actually completely disagree with you on the Angela Bassett point because... I wouldn't say that she's playing a caricature. I'd say that all of the other performers that you mentioned before, maybe with the exception of Don Cheadle, who was a really sensitive performer anyway, and that was really a passion project for him. And he didn't shy away from some of the more negative points of Miles Davis' life. Angela Bassett plays uh, Tina Turner as a real human being, as a real person, as opposed to the onstage caricature and the onstage persona that she then created, that she grafted. You can see all of the elements of her backstory kind of leading up to her becoming Tina, Mm. the onstage Tina. So I wouldn't say that's as over the top or as showy. And in fact, the fact that that film doesn't get as recognised or screened as much as others do, is sort of also related to what sort of stories are we interested in seeing on screen, what sort of stories get the push behind them, what sort of performers can get these films into cinemas and then release properly and then probably canonised as well.
2: Yeah, I mean, music biopics are subject to the same rules as any other film. So I'm amazed that we don't have more like biopics of Journey or Foreigner or things like that, because surely that's what the kind of white middle-aged exec is listening to in the car.
1: They got documentaries though. Yeah, that's
2: true. <laughs> Another element that we have to deal with is that people, you know, people, particularly if they've died fairly recently, still have family kicking around. We've talked, we brushed this a little bit already, but that already plays into the myth of who that person was. And you eventually always get this sanitized version of what people were really, really like. And as we've said, like, it's actually more interesting to see the fancy version of that person, even if they're despicable, than to see someone who has been cleaned up and canonized.
1: Of course, and there's also the the very unseen, and frankly, the world we know almost nothing about of kind of music rights and what sort of access filmmakers or artists can have to the actual music, because that's the other point. There was a Jimi Hendrix biopic a few years ago, Jimmy All Is By My Side, which was actually not allowed to use any of his actual music, and Hendrix in that film was portrayed by um, Andre 3000 of Outcast fame, but it felt. A mishmash. It felt odd to portray someone and he did a great job and he also looks extraordinarily like Hendrix as well. But There was that element missing. How can you do a music biopic without being able to access the actual music of the person you're playing?
2: For once, Anna, I totally disagree with you because Jimmy All By My Side was a much better film because we didn't get to see Andre 3000 cranking out Purple Haze. It just, it felt like you saw everything but the music. So you felt like where that music was coming from much more keenly, I think. There were massive issues with that film, namely that Kathy Etching and one of his ex-girlfriends almost sued the director, John Ridley, because it shows Jimi Hendrix as a domestic abuser her against her which she says he wasn't um, but i think that the the music lacking from that film is a real plus point in that you see everything that combined to make the man but not particularly his art and if you know jimmy well enough or if you even vaguely know his music you know what it sounds like you need to see where that music came from
0: Come,
1: easy, go. That brings us neatly to the next point, which is what is the actual story that the best music biopics need to tell? Something that's clear to understand, something like a Rex to Richard story or the other way around, the breakdown or the story of a breakdown or a meltdown of a talented artist. Some of the ones that we've mentioned, actually, and some of the ones that we haven't, don't really have a clear narrative. Mm. And personally, I think those are the most interesting ones. Like Love and Mercy, the Brian Wilson biopic, is actually a portrait. There's not really a key plot point. There is one about him being manipulated by his therapist or his manager and being kind of dosed with drugs and meeting a new girlfriend. I'm also thinking of, Gus Van Sant's last days, which is ostensibly based on the last days of Kurt Cobain, yeah. even though he's never named as such, but he obviously is styled to look like him. The music that he plays really references Nirvana, but it's very much intended to be a mood piece as opposed to a, this is what happened to Kurt Cobain before he committed suicide. So do you think that the more accessible story, the ascent or the descent of a musician makes for a better music biopic?
2: I don't think it makes for better. I think there's really good examples, like something like Curtis Hansen's Eight Mile, which is, quote unquote, the story of Eminem like that is brilliantly done like and and you feel the tangible excitement of somebody dragging themselves out of the trailer park into rap superstardom or suggested rap superstardom but that's more of a sports film in the same way that Whiplash is really it's a kind of these are the big matches he has to face and he's going to make his way to the top. And that's exciting in itself. I mean, Bohemian Rhapsody does it a little bit as well, but it kind of goes for the Mighty Ducks thing of like a big loss. And then here's the comeback for the Live live Aid show live aid, at yeah. the end of the film. That's it done poorly, I'd say. I think the kind of king and queen of the amorphous, weird biopic without much structure is I'm Not There, the uh, biopic of Bob Dylan, just because that so brilliantly matches the tone of... Dylan and also this idea that we all have a different idea of what most musicians including Bob Dylan are and so we have to see seven or eight different filters of that character and that's what casting all these different actors in that role did. See, you just want me to say what you want me to say.
0: Once upon a time you dressed so fine, through the bumps of dime in your prime. All they want from me is finger point socks. They're only goddamn fingers.
1: It's not about me anymore, it's all about him.
0: That's
2: nature's will, and I'm against nature. Could've swore he was an older man. Well, he used to be, <laughs> much older.
1: What's with all this Doomsday hocus-hocus?
2: Yes, chaos, clocks, watermelons, you know, it's everything.
1: I think going back to Bohemian Rhapsody, you're right. It doesn't really... I think it tries in principle to do the the rise and fall in a way or the rise and re-rise of Freddie Mercury and Queen. But actually, it's a lot more centred on the day-to-day. It's a very routine-based film where you just see how they became Queen, how he became Freddie Mercury, literally by changing his name and you know developing this new personality and really folding into it and into this public persona. But also, actually, it's a lot of the... Recording the bickering, the writing, the touring, the different, um, you know, parties and things that they did, and then eventually how they settled down, and all of them settled down and kind of comfortably went into their lives, and then the live aid section of the of the film, which is kind of the climax of Bohemian Rhapsody, is sort of fundamentally routine and I love the shots of Bob Geldof kind of waiting for the money to come in for the the donations. It's beautiful because while they're concerned, you know, this is one of the greatest if not the greatest rock performance of all all time. It's very much kind of popularly hailed as such and they really recreated in painstaking detail but I'm more interested in all of the production elements behind the scenes because that's the actual music industry. That's the actual business behind it. It's not so much focused on the audience, which is just a mass of CGI bobs that sort of react to the songs that are being played, but all of the people behind it.
2: And I think also it goes back to this point of musicians living fundamentally boring lives to some extent. There's even a line where Brian May, the character Brian May, says, you know, what we do is album tour, album tour. That doesn't make for an interesting film. And it's striking that everybody who's in the film that isn't Freddie Mercury is really bland and flavourless. So you essentially have the shagger, the, the boring one, and the Brian, and then Freddie. Which
1: one's the boring one? The
2: boring one is the bassist.
1: He's the most fun one. He's the most sensible one. Yeah,
2: he's got a, a Sideshow Bob kind of hairdo and that's yes, about the does. most exciting thing about him. Just slow down, friend.
0: I just need a bit of time. Whatever, I don't have time.
2: No, I think that that's the case where you need that Ascension story to come in. Otherwise, what have you got? You've got a brilliant performance by Rami Malek as Freddie Mercury, as this incredibly extravagant, interesting man, troubled man as well. But that's not enough to sustain a film without the kind of framework of step by step up and then down and then back up again.
1: Well, we haven't really even mentioned Rami Malek's performance in detail. He is extraordinary. He basically lifts the entire film. But one of the things that I think kind of fails is that he's always presented as just being this genius from the beginning. He was born that way. He was always that way. All he needed was a different haircut and a better stylist and a stage. But he was always there. He was always Freddie Mercury, which is kind of lacking in that development story angle of like, how does he become that?
2: Just you wait till our last line of the episode, Anna, and Freddie's going to prove you wrong. Okay, this is about the process of canonising people through film. Anna, I'm wondering if you've ever seen one of these films and thought better of the person that is it's about.
1: I think there's an interesting dynamic that goes on between The Spectator and these types of films. And I'm thinking specifically now of watching Walk the Line. Mm. And obviously Johnny Cash is an extraordinary musician, but I remember at that time seeing that film and thinking, oh, it's, it's so sad, he was so troubled, he had so many issues, it's so too bad you know he could have done even better yeah. but actually when I'm thinking now there is an element of particularly with male artists of uh, justifying and excusing a lot of their bad behaviour and sometimes really terrible behaviour through their talent. It's like oh it's great they're amazing. Yes they're uh, wife beaters. Yes they're um, drug addicts. Yes they're terrible people to everyone around them but aren't they talented? That's the only thing that matters. That depends a lot on the director and that depends a lot on how they present those characters as well I'm thinking now as well of Get On Up the James Brown biopic that came out a few years ago where James Brown played by Chadwick Boseman he did get up to no good in a lot of situations I mean his talent is extraordinary but that film I think sort of challenged you as well in thinking about him in all his complexity because we do as audience members and as fans of the music have a tendency to just forget about who the people were and just think about their output Have you seen a film called Lowdown?
2: I have not. Lowdown is a really low-key film released a couple of years ago um, and it stars John Hawkes as uh, Joe Albany who is a kind of minor jazz figure but very talented jazz figure. Also stars the amazing Flea playing trumpet in, in it live. Um, but that film takes the focus completely off Joe Albany um, and focuses instead on his daughter, who was growing up with him at the time when he was addicted to heroin, when the scene around him was quite damaging and destructive. And I thought it was a really beautiful film because it it didn't shy away from showing both the talent and the disaster area that that person had become and how it affected his daughter. And it was made with the complete goodwill of her as well, the real-life daughter, and consulting her, but it still felt like you could show every aspect of a person. And that's where the music comes from, right, in the same way that the Jimmy film does, that you need to see every aspect, both fancy and real, to really understand where the music comes from. And if you love the music, then you should love the story of the person too as a director, I think. Well,
1: that's really interesting. That's actually quite rare because usually we can see the destruction that these artists kind of build around themselves or that, that they inflict on themselves as well, but we never see the consequences on other people. We're almost always entirely focused on them and how it destroys them from the inside out. But I'm thinking now of Control, the Ian Curtis biopic, which is also roughly based on the memoir by my Curtis's widow which doesn't necessarily focus that much on her but you can see the effects that his illness his personality and his eventual suicide had on those around him particularly on his wife
0: yeah we missed it. got it and it's good when I'm up there singing genius actually they don't understand how much I give no. and how it affects me I never meant for it to grow like that get out i've no control anymore i love you what does that mean when you're looking at life in a strange new room is face the start of it all
2: can you think of any biopics and put you on the spot which uh, focus on a woman behaving badly
1: that's a really good question. And I tell you what, there, I cannot think of any because there aren't many. <laughs> because usually, and I've got my hand on my hip, and I've got my pose. <laughs> there are not many because it is very difficult for us to accept women behaving badly on screen. And I'll add to that, it's very difficult for us to accept creative women who put their art on above anything else and I'm thinking particularly of children or family or husbands or wives or whatever and actually the one that comes to mind is not a biopic it's a fictional film but it's Wild Rose Mm. from this year's London Film Festival which I thought might go there and show us someone who was incredibly talented who would put her talent above everything else and kind of go with it and go to wherever it would take her and then failed at that it's still a really great film but I'm aching to see a biopic of Janis Joplin or some of the incredible women who were flawed and probably terrible human beings as well, but whose um, talent shone brighter than anything that their personality did. I would also pay everything to someone to make a shared biopic.
2: I'm there with you. Nothing really matters. Nothing really matters, Anna. You going to sing it with me? No. Ah one day it's about the story then isn't it it's not about people and it's about the film and it's not about the truth that's what we've summarized so you can tell a whole pack of lies as long as those lies are entertaining and speak to the atmosphere of the music and the tone of the music rather than the person i think that's really important
1: i think absolutely the truth of the music is actually more important and movies film needs to respond to the art that's in the music as well, as opposed to trying to present the artist behind them in a certain way. And also, ultimately, in the same way as movie making, music is not just one person, not just one magical moment where something materializes fully formed. It's a whole process, and the relationship between the music and the fans and the audience is a really complex one, and how it lives within its moment in time as well is the context around it is fascinating. And all of that can be used by filmmakers to create something new and fresh and extraordinary. I completely agree with you that the best example of this is I'm Not There, which effectively uses both the personality and the changing periods of Bob Dylan's life and his music to create something entirely fresh and new and something that's completely out there cinematically and stylistically, but feels so completely true to the essence of Dylan's music.
2: Totally. I think another good example is the um, 24-hour party people, which is the essentially the biopic of the Manchester scene at the time, but really of Tony Wilson, the Factory Records founder and kind of bigwig. And because Tony Wilson was such a charismatic character, but also someone who was quite prone to bullshitting himself, the film takes that tone on. So it does a lot of fourth wall breaking, consciously telling you that this didn't happen like this, but I'm going to tell you it this way because it's a better story. And it just brilliantly puts across how that scene felt at the time, that it was evolving, that it was lively, that the music spoke to that as well, but that Tony was a character above all else. And I spoke to um, the writer of that film, Frank Cottrell Boyce, a while back, and he said that Tony liked the film to the extent that he took on some of the characteristics of Tony Wilson from the film. So he started quoting WB Yeats um, because the character in the film had done so and he wanted to live up to the myth that had been created to him by the film. So he get into this really weird twisty place where the subject becomes the character becomes the subject again and i love that about that kind of art that you can't really separate the two between real life and the fantasy
1: manchester birthplace to the railways the computer the bouncing bomb in 1976 if you wanted to see the most exciting bands in the world they were on a regional show coming out of manchester my show i'm tony wilson have you had a factory reference? My label. Joy Division. New Order. Happy Mondays.
2: We are an experiment in human nature. <laughs>
0: <laughs> what kind of music you got me bringing in? Sort of new wave. Kind of indie. Indian? It's a pity you didn't sign the Smiths. I've just seen God. What do you look like? who like me.
1: And I'm going to add there as well, Control. Because of some of the choices that its director, Anton Corbin, made, it actually... Despite kind of um looking at the trauma that Ian Curtis's illness and suicide then had the effect on on his bandmates and wife, you really capture the atmosphere of the music of Joy Division as well, both in the style and um where it was born out of and the effect that it had on people at the time as well. That one I think really really captures the the atmosphere of a particular type of band.
0: So
2: we've kind of talked about what we want to see subject wise from music biopic already, but what you know, what's your favorite band that hasn't been yet? Made into a film masterpiece.
1: I've mentioned Cher, but I think she deserves her own Lord of the Rings-style trilogy. (laughs) Um, I'm gonna say I would love to see a biopic of Bikini Kill and the Riot Girl scene from the 90s. Yeah,
2: it's a good call. There's an
1: excellent documentary about Kathleen Hanna already out there called The Punk Punk Singer. Singer, But um, I think that period of music and that particular scene, in a very similar way as 24 Hour Party People, was very vibrant with a lot of different types of music kind of battling with each other and a lot of connections between other musicians as well. Um, um, most notably, Kirk Cobain was really good friends with the, with the woman from Bikini Kill. And I think the time is now to actually create something like that.
2: Okay. Right. I was thinking of a biopic of the Slits, so similar lines really. Like I think it's an amazing story, amazing characters around them, but never ones that overwhelm them. Their music still stands up and it sounds amazing and they've got some brilliant characters in the band. Um, and then, showing my age, Beastie Boys. Because I think, again, you could make you could make a film of the world. You wouldn't be making just a film of those characters in it. You couldn't really like, go into their fantasy world of space and Japan and travel with them in these kind of different phases they went through in their career. And I think that would make a really kind of interesting I'm Not There style tone poem. Um, they have got a book coming out that does a similar thing, but I'll make it into a film soon. Okay, on to your tweets. We asked you what makes a good music biopic, and this is how you responded. This is James Burgess at James Film Critic, and he says, I'd say one that uses the cinematic form innovatively, inventively and surprisingly with not just a succession of greatest hits, but a look at the artist's interior life, which lets audiences know a fact about them that they didn't before we've kind of ticked off all of those things, haven't we?
1: Yeah, but I'd also say that there's a fundamental discrepancy between an artist's interior life and facts about them.
2: Ah, and the hits maybe.
1: Well, regardless of that, understanding someone from the inside out does not just mean things that happen to them. In fact, you know, someone could be sitting in a room writing amazing poetry or songs and there's nothing really, you know, the fact is that they're sitting in a room writing, but their interior life is something entirely different.
2: True. Adam Bolt has picked out, at Adam Bolt, he's picked out uh, montages, especially one depicting a dizzying rise to fame. I think that's our magical music moments, which drive me crazy. So they might be part of music biopics, but they need to die quickly. That's it for this episode. Rate, review, subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts and let us know what you think of the show directly. You can find me on Twitter at Henry H. Barnes and Anna.
1: I'm at Anna B. Demented.
2: We're hosted by Acast. Pete Sale is the man who tells us to dial down the operatics, a.k.a. our producer. More of his work at petersale.co.uk. We'll be back in a couple of weeks. Your last line this episode comes from Freddie Mercury. I always knew I was a star and now the rest of the world agrees with me.